Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring some of the best live talks out of the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and I'm the head of Talks and Ideas here. And today, we continue our selection of live recordings from Antidote, a new festival of art, action and ideas. Steph Harmon chairs this super topical discussion about taking your activism online. The panellists are journalist Van Badham, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race author Renietto Lodge, blogger Celeste Little, and online activism researcher Tim Highfield. So I'm going to start this just with a little bit of context around social media and politics. Um, Tim, when social media first popped up, people were very hopeful about how it could be used um, for activism, for politics, to give more people a voice in these spaces. I'm wondering what ways you've noticed that these hopes have come true um, and what it is about this space that you found so compelling in your work. Well, I mean, this isn't just with social media. This is discourse that started with the internet itself. Like, yeah. there were two kind of main argue, well, two main schools of thought. One was that it was going to be awesome. It was going to change everything. It was going to be democratizing, and everyone would have a voice, and it would change journalism, it would change politics, it would change the media. And the other one was that no, it's all, it's all crap. We're going <laughs> to end up talking just to the people that we're interested in, um, and not hear any other voices. Um, and so there's been ways that both of them have come true, really. Like, we've seen, like, really successful um, examples of social media being used around activism and social movements, uh, where the social media side of it wasn't the only thing, and it certainly wasn't the cause for success, mm. uh, but it, or the sole cause anyway. But it was a key part of strategies from Occupy Wall Street and, Black, and um, the Arab Spring to the use of digital media within Black Lives Matter movement, um, and other like, very local social movements where digital strategies are a key part of getting messages out uh, and getting people aware of what's happening, even if so, like, just having a successful hashtag isn't going to change policy, yeah. but it's part of like, making people aware of what's going on. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering from, from your three perspectives as well, um, your social activists and your commentators, you all have access now to mainstream platforms, but I'm wondering what drew you to the platforms of blogging or of Twitter initially in the first place? What was it about that that, um, for instance, Rennie, when you published that blog post, you were contributing to mainstream publications. Why did you choose to blog that piece? Because the British media wouldn't publish that piece. Right. Why would any, you know, the British media is 94% white, even though it's based in London, one of the most multicultural cities in the world. And so it didn't even occur to me that I would take it to a a newspaper editor at all. Mm. Um, and so I, I, you know, I did get a lot of commissions off the back of that piece and a lot of editors wanting me to do that same work. But mm. the point of it was that I was able to publish it somewhere in a space that I owned and I, you know, owned that space on the internet, mm -hmm. um, which meant that nobody could attempt to curtail it or soften it in any way. Um, and, and I think that was really important. Um, you know, but a lot of the reasons why my work started out online, even though I'm, you know, a, a big part of the literary establishment now, is um, the fact that there was nobody would publish any sort of like critical perspective on race and racism in Britain. Nobody mm. was going near it with a barge pole, or if they would, they would um, commission one black freelancer to comment on something. But the newsrooms were still overwhelmingly white, mm. um, and. And I, 
I'm a journalist by trade, and I've done the internships, and I've seen it for myself. I remember the first internship that I did, the vast majority of um, black people were in cleaning and catering, not mm. setting the news agenda. And so that's why that, that's why that piece was on my blog. It couldn't have been anywhere else, mm. and I don't think it would have been right for it to be anywhere else. Mm. Although one, um, actually, Britain's only black newspaper um, got in touch with me as soon as it went online and asked if they could republish it. And I thought it was particularly interesting that no, no other type of media got in touch to ask if they could republish it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm just nodding along with Rennie, so it's such a sim similar sort of story. And before I say anything else, I too would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. And also, um, I identify myself as an Arunda woman from Central Australia. but. Um, I started rantings of an Aboriginal feminist purely because there were utterly no spaces within the mainstream media and indeed I didn't, I didn't want a part of the mainstream media when I started it. Mm. Um, for, for Aboriginal feminist opinion that was obviously of the hard left variety, which is where I come from, those are the views that I represent, where Aboriginal views are represented in the media they have always been the views that, or the mainstream media, I should say, until, until social media ha has opened up that space a little bit, which is the interesting thing. Because I started my blog and I was published in the mainstream media within six weeks, which is a story that never happens. Mm. But um, yeah, until, until that space, the, the, the voices of Aboriginal people that were represented in the media were either the oppositional voices that the status quo was trying to take down, mm. or they were the voices that the, were the most palatable to the status quo. So conservative male Aboriginal commentators, definitely not radical left female commentators. Mm. And it was about taking that space, owning that space. Um, I didn't think anyone would read that space except for other Aboriginal um, women, particularly Aboriginal left-wing women. I was surprised when Aboriginal men were reading it that left-wing activists actually got into it too and that it got picked up by the media it was a very, very strange experience mm. for me because it definitely wasn't created for that reason. It was created to go around what was the establishment. Mm. And if I might add quickly, I think the there's an importance of ownership over that, not just uh, intellectually, but financially. And I took the time and, and space and put the money aside to own that hosting space mm. in which I was writing that, in which I wrote that piece, because you know, Twitter's just changed its terms of service to um, essentially say that if you upload anything, that any of your own creative artistic endeavors, they own the licenses to it, yeah. Yeah. and they can do as they wish. And so I think that that's particularly important. Like We have to talk about the in intersection between like neoliberal capitalism and those social media spaces that we think are so equal. Yeah, and we'll definitely get to, to some of the, the limitations on, on voices that those particular platforms have placed as well. Um, I'm wondering when you started engaging with the mainstream Celeste and with the mainstream media after, and, and Rennie and Van as well, I mean, uh, what's the difference between how you um, present your opinions and arguments? Do you find that in order to reach a mainstream audience or a larger audience, you need to mute your language or your, the ferocity of your argument? Well, I've rocked up here with the Cosmic Psychos t-shirt. <laughs> um, part, look, part of, part of my deal is that I haven't muted a great deal, but um, 
there are certain, certain ways that I do have to navigate those spaces. Um, I, I've recently spoken, for example, about the framing of intersectionality and how I'm finding that's a bit of a problem at the moment because I'm interested in talking about structures of oppression, but a lot of the time there's a lot of, you know, intersectionality ends up being this quite superficial discussion about identity politics. So structures of oppression, unpacking that and trying to convey that to broader audiences is sometimes difficult. So, so I do find that sometimes I, I have to be careful about how I frame stuff. Um, I don't know, I mean, one of the things that I started off with um, when I did start writing was, um, was using really plain language and language that could be picked up and read and understood by as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. It's very much the way I communicate despite all of the education I've had because I want it to be able to be picked up by people who haven't, you know, had those sorts of opportunities. But. But there is a push and pull. I did get down, I did get down hard. My, my, um, my blog continued to exist, um, and it still exists today, sometimes to publish the more radical stuff that the media won't pick up because they're looking for the hits, they're looking for the stuff that they can run advertising alongside in order to build revenue. They're looking for those sorts of things. Mm. And there's always that, there's always, um, that sort of push and pull. So, so yeah, it, I I find that I mean you know my Facebook page gives me the opportunity to to be quite blunt, to swear all over the place, to mm -hmm. do whatever else. But when it comes to writing in the media, sometimes yeah, my voice can be my voice can be shaped by that and can be edited in order to fit into mm. that. And I do have a problem with that. Have you found? Have any of you found uh, editors tempering what you're saying in a way that you're not comfortable with? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you negotiate that? Um, oh, it really, really depends. Um, and you know, I'd be. I, I guess. Um, I guess where where you know they're trying to shape it in order to to. Um, when I'm talking about structures and structural oppression and they're shaping it to focus on one person, yeah. I have an issue with that because I want to bring down the structure. I want to unpack those sorts of structures mm. of oppression. And structures of oppression aren't about one person. One person might be a spokesperson who reinforces them, but they're not actually centred around that. So, mm. so yeah, I have had to... I've, I have had to... Not fight, but... but Barney, mm. banter with editors around those sorts of topics. But, I, yeah, I don't know how everyone else has negotiated. <laughs> what about it's you, Dan? <laughs> um, well, I didn't, I didn't come into a media profile through blogging. I came in through Twitter. Mm. And I'm a theatre maker. Like, I'm, I'm, I had never had any aspiration to have a media career. I was making very poignant, um, avant-garde feminist theatre in very small rooms. Fortunately, the audience didn't come because they weren't particularly qualified to understand what I was doing. That's a hilarious joke. Um, <laughs> and, but I like fighting and I like arguing and that's really what Twitter is for. And um, I got involved in Twitter because I was actually living in Britain, um, living out the being impoverished, working in a bar, pursuing an arts career dream. And um, 
and I used Twitter to stay in contact with Australian news. Mm. And my behaviour on Twitter, because I was doing something completely different with my life, was quite unrestrained. And imagine my surprise when I came back to Australia and was suddenly engaging in online fights in daylight hours and suddenly was part of a real-time community. It was quite a shock to me that mm. these people I'd sort of communicated with on Twitter, this community was a real thing of actual people um, who lived in Melbourne where I moved to when I came back to Australia, and that suddenly I was part of a community that I was already referent with. And I had absolutely no moderation in the way that I engaged with Twitter at that time because I didn't need to. Yeah. And I was merely expressing on the basis of my own you know, resentments towards oppressive global capitalism and organised online misogyny, effectively. And, um, and what was interesting for me, and I, I don't think in this country we can really underestimate the, the limitations on the social and political imagination that have been enforced by concentrated media ownership here. And coming from Britain, where there's much more, uh, in some ways, diverse media culture, um, coming back to Australia, where the worst elements of the British media are concentrated and reified, was quite surprising. I mean, even 10 years ago, when we still had the days of the printed newspaper, the, you'd see maybe one female columnist a, columnist a week and always talking about the family mm. and parenting issues, and that was the role for women in the media, and those women were exclusively white, and all of the serious opinions were not only white middle-class and ruling-class men, but white middle-class, ruling-class, straight, cis men who were very rarely anything apart from conservative or maybe at best neoliberal. To have a, a left-wing person on the news, papers of a broadsheet, you could be about as left as a centrist liberal. Mm. Like, and that was our understanding of what the cultural left was in Australia, was somebody who fundamentally was invested in you know, private property and you know, the agency of the individual and civil li libertarian issues. That was the cultural left. To be a social democrat who got a space in a newspaper in this country, you actually had to be elected to parliament. So my participation in Twitter was unrestricted because I'm used to, like, Celeste, like, I'm from a hard-left um, political background as well, <laughs> and certainly wanting to have that kind of conversation was something that takes place in activist spaces. And Twitter for me was, you know, like being back in student politics mm. and getting into furfies. Imagine my surprise when I did a stand-up comedy gig in Sydney and did some of my best cock jokes um, in front of an audience that I presumed would be 19-year-old university undergraduates from the Women's Collective at Sydney Uni critiquing this is privilege. And uh, the lights went on and Catherine Viner, who's now the international of the editor of The Guardian, uh, was there and they offered me a job the next day. Mm. And the, the change in digital media has been a change in awareness of what is actually possible in uh, public debate in Australia, because what digital media has been able to do is identify that there are actually audiences for people who want to talk about social democratic politics, socialist politics, communist politics, Marxist insights. Oh my God, you know, there is a, a space in the media to talk about trade unionism, which is a movement that two million Australians are active participants in. And that has, has been, you know, the, the success of newspapers to talk to that audience, to communicate, to, to explicitly confront discussions about race, about inclusion, about Aboriginal land, about, um, about feminism, those kind of things. Those audiences are, are powerful and they're real and we don't have to exist under that false mm -hmm. filter anymore. Where I um, have found myself moderated is, as my audience has grown, I actually have to be more explicit. Like, I have a, now that I have an audience through The Guardian, I have a responsibility to be um, 
to be to be factual all the time. I can't take risks around exaggeration. Mm -hmm. I can't use my platform, and I shouldn't because it's an unethical thing to do to merely like attack and personalise um, my opposition towards people. Mm. And, and that has changed the way that I engage online. Um, but the, the conversation uh, that I think is important is the conversation around um, hostility online and around the way that uh, a quite concerted political project is taking place online, particularly around the sort of Trump phenomena, and certainly in Australia around various male, white, right-wing, um, homophobic identities to consolidate their, their, fa their failing, loosening grip on power. Yeah. And, um, and certainly, like, in Australia, where we've seen with social media, these traditionally, like, invisible communities have taken their place in the social conversation, in a social conversation that looks like mm. Australia, that the patriarchs, my God, are willing to poison, destroy, wreck, burn, harass, uh, drive hatred towards and bully anybody who challenges, you know, the, the hegemony of their worldview. And we'll absolutely talk about the risks of having a voice online, because I think those people make themselves heard um, maybe more than they ever have been able to make themselves heard before. But I also want to talk, you know, we're talking a lot about Twitter and blogs, but I'm wondering, Tim, if you can open it up and talk about some of maybe the new ways, newer ways that people are using these spaces as well, um, maybe from the left, but maybe also from the right. Well, it's one of the things that's always happened is that with these platforms, like none of them really have been developed to be political. Like mm. the people who came up with them were trying to like rate how hot the other people were in their classes or yeah, yeah. just <laughs> wanted to share pictures of their lunch and like it's, it's the beauty of um, the audience and the creativity of the people using the platforms for better or worse that they will take what's available and make it something that they actually need or want to do with it. So that happened with Twitter, it happened with Facebook. Um, it happens, like, so people find ways to be creative and political in all of these different spaces. Um, we had the example recently um, on Tinder of, um, was it Lizzie O'Shea, like, sending out all of, like, to all of her matches reminders to be enrolled for the um, marriage equality <laughs> postal survey, yeah. um, not a vote. Um, and and the, the response the to Greens that... the Greens have done it as well. On, well on they, the Greens did, um, target, well, did advertising on Grindr last year yeah. um, during the election, um, like targeting particularly uh, inner, inner city Melbourne electorates because they know their audience. Mm. Um, and there were also reports last year um, back in the Halcyon days when the US election didn't quite go as wrong as it did, that um, people like Bernie Sanders um, supporters, again, using Tinder to like, promote enrolling and voting to su and supporting mm. Bernie. And harass and demean any woman who criticised oh, their behaviour. Yes. Well, yeah, but I don't even think this was the bros. I think this was just like, someone who's actually well-meaning but possibly possibly went that way in yes, the end. An entitled, self-opinionated misogynist. It, yes, we've exactly. all seen it. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and this is the thing, like, even if it's for candidates who potentially are good, like, it's the same, like, we have the same problems of people, like, being, like, abusive and invasive and not respecting other people's views or uh, yes. limitations. Yes. Well, let's talk about that then. So, um, it is often, you know, brought forward as this tool, this democratising tool, but I'm wondering, does everyone still have, like, can everyone have a voice? What are the limits to access to these platforms? And perhaps also drawing from your experiences, what are some of the risks of engaging with them? 
No, I don't think everyone can have a voice, actually. The reason why I say that is because it might seem superficially democratic, but actually um, my voice was not properly facilitated until I had uh, institutional backing from a publishing house right. in order to actually facilitate the arguments that I'd been trying to make via my articles um, for five years prior. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, attempting to try and do that task by yourself because what I was trying what I ha was trying to do with that blog post and and the reason why I turned it into a book was I wanted to fundamentally change people's understanding of what race and racism is uh, and how it manifests in our society and why it's as much as a political ideology as capitalism is but it's perhaps even worse because most people don't even recognize mm. that it is um, that's that's not you can't do that over tweets, mm. right? You can't, I don't, I did not have the um, resources to be able to go off and do the research that I did for the book by myself. Um, and no, not many people can do that unless they've got independent wealth. Yeah. Um, and attempting to do it b solely by yourself, as far as I'm concerned, is unsustainable. And I know it for a fact because I know anecdotally from many people um, that they eventually burn out. Um, and so it might seem superficially democratizing, but actually the nuts and bolts behind the scenes is extremely emotionally exhausting. And it's one of the reasons why I ended up writing what ended up being the opening essay for the book. That was me dropping the mic and saying, I'm not engaging with this anymore yeah. because I, I'm being forced re repeatedly into a reactive position, whereas I was very interested in attempting to set an agenda, which is something that I was able to do um, with some institutional backing. And so I am very suspicious of any assertion that it's a hugely democratizing space because it comes at great emotional cost to yeah. so many. I'm just nodding along with Rennie throughout this entire <laughs> panel, but also, also picking up on what Tim said. I mean, for, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, social media has been extraordinarily important because we are 3% of the population and our rate of use of Facebook, um, whether it's from the city communities all the way out to the most remote communities that you can imagine in Australia, is 20% higher than what the mainstream rate of use is. We grabbed this and ran with it. But we didn't grab it and run with it necessarily as a political platform. We grabbed it and ran with it to connect with family and community across the country in a way that, you know, through vast distance, through, through um, resources in remote areas, through all of that, we hadn't actually necessarily um, necessarily had access to before. The problem is that you cannot be born in this country Aboriginal without being born into politics. So political organising through that platform came very, very quickly and it has been useful in the building of our movement. So I was the I was the lead organiser of this year's Melbourne Invasion Day rally in which we got 50,000 people out on the street protesting Australia Day. But I am really, really staunch in, st in stating, I mean, obviously some of that was run through the platform that I've built through the years. Other parts of it were built through absolute ongoing organising that had happened by a core group of young Aboriginal, mainly women, um, activists who had built up ongoing political out on the street activities for a really, really long time and have been out there for the Stop the Force Closures rallies, the Dondale rallies, um, you know, the broader sovereignty movement. We've been able to get those sorts of views out there and 
through our own network, share them, and then using, using people like me who've been, built, um, built some sort of platform in order to get them out even further. But whether it's actually democratising, there's so many limits to that. I mean, you know, we see only this week, I mean, we've seen, um, we've seen two councils in Melbourne p decide to remove Australia Day celebrations from their calendar um, in order to be a bit more respectful, not just of the Indigenous community in those areas, but also of the history that exists in those areas and the fact that that history is integral and important to those areas. But the fight back against that, you know, we're not talking about a broader movement of actually acknowledging invasion and genocide and land clearings and all of those sorts of things here. These are local activities and the pushback about against those two councils, the fact that they've had their rights removed to do citizenship ceremonies, mm. everything else, is just extraordinary. So any little gains that we get through social media, still there exists that status quo, that, um, that power base in Australia that pushes back and, and uses, uses the tools that they have to drown it as much as possible. But it's also important to acknowledge that in terms of democratisation, there's always going to be, in, in a literal medium, there's going to be a hierarchy of language and your, your adeptness with the language is what enables you to build an audience. Mm. And it's, it's interesting to look at it from my perspective because I built an audience based on the fact that I can be funny and I can occasionally churn out a decent one-liner. I have four theatre degrees. Like, mm. I've been involved in you know, the, the most precise training around theatrical practice and writing and expression for... I did, like, 13 years at university or something. That gives me an advantage. Mm. Um, it, it's fortunate that, you know, I was one of the people who managed to get through the doors um, in the 1980s and 90s to get a university education, despite the fact that I was first in family. It was before uh, the hex fees went up and university started becoming more exclusive again in Australia and, you know, kids from working-class families were more encouraged into m money jobs or safer professions, whereas I was let off the hook to do creative arts. And that kind of, my poor dad, who never got it, <laughs> never came to everything, never got it. Um, and the, those kind of opportunities enable who you can speak to, who gets to speak, who has that kind mm. of access. And within the Australian community as well, like looking at who gets to build an audience is always going to exist within that paradigm of language and education. Um, and, and not everybody can do that. Mm. What I see, I mean, my responsibility, I think, with my platform um, to be a good ally is to, and what I think, because people are often like, you know, particularly with the marriage equality, um, like, postal survey, imbroglio policy disaster, or strategised, structuralised awfulness, um, people from the straight community who want to be good allies, you know, there's that question, like, how do I support? And it's like social media actually gives you this incredible opportunity to amplify in silence, that to give, to open a space for legitimacy and, and experience and uh, lived insight to have a voice and have a space without you frameworking within your own analysis. Mm. And, and I think that's the great blessing of, of social media and that's an opportunity that everyone should share. Can you talk about practically? Do you mean um, sort of 
not not giving yourself a microphone to have your opinion, but yeah, making but the space to, for someone to, else. To see yourself as an ant. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's appropriate, like, you know, to, to intervene and be part of a discussion. And sometimes the most generous act you can do is just shut up and pass it mm. on. And, I, and I just, Celeste is right that online activism is not a replacement for traditional organising. It isn't. And the most successful social media campaigns are ones that have the infrastructure of a movement behind them. And, uh, and that all those traditional community building, outreach, face-to-face -face conversations, uh, messaging, planning, that's actually all part of what, what happens on social media mm. when it's effective. There are moments of zeitgeist awareness where everybody's sort of on the same page at the same time, but even the opportunity to have that conversation is built by participation in collectives and communities and activism. And it's important to remember as well, like activists, there's this wonderful essay about activism that identifies the activist as in inherently a non-median actor, that somebody who's an activist is trying to change the world in some way, and that's never going to be a majority opinion. And for people who are like, oh, those horrible people on the internet who's, who are mean and terrible and just the worst, um, why are they like that? It's like, because they're also activists, mm. and they are dedicated to creating a particular worldview, and they're not representative of the majority of people. Um, but they are using that, that tool in order to, to pursue a particular kind of outcome. And in some ways, that gives me a lot of strength, because I'm like, I, if we're fighting over the 60% of people who are in the centre, I'm heaps nicer and more funny, and I reckon I can get them faster than you. Yeah. It, and what about, what about um, so there's barriers to entry, but what about some of the risks that you have come across in your work as well, the personal tolls it takes? I mean, we were talking before about the exhaustion that comes from fighting these fights every day, but maybe we can talk a little bit about that and some of the strategies that you guys have come up with to help. Um, well, one of the things that I find um, within social media, there's this continual criticism about um, preaching to the converted, and and it's used as it's used to denigrate online activity quite often, you know, that the idea that you're talking to people who feel similarly to you and therefore you're always within that echo chamber. Um, but I've never actually seen that as a bad thing. Mm. I've seen that as a space to nurture because I'm not always preaching to the converted. I'm preaching to people who might have similar politics to me in certain ways. They might be feminists or leftists or whatever else but they've engaged in my space because they actually find it n nourishing in some way or they learn something. And then maybe they take that information to their family barbecue and have a discussion with their racist uncle mm. who, who is talking about Aboriginal people and say, well, hang on a sec. It, you know, that, that group of people can take what you have and then move it onwards in ways that I can never imagine doing. Um, and it, that it's not a bad thing talking within that group. But as far as self-care and all that goes, um, you know, it is. It's really, really difficult. And we're really terrible at actually taking care of ourselves and, and um, realising when that burnout's happening. Mm. Because there is a lot of emotional labour labor that exists in trying to educate people over and over again about race politics mm. in particular. Um, you know, there's a lot of... There, it, it is exhausting. Um, 
one of the things that I like to say is that it shouldn't just be down to me to educate. People do need to speak to their racist uncles rather than expect me to come out and actually convert them. Mm. That's not what my job is. Um, but also, too, I'm an avid blogger. There's a, I mean, sorry, blocker, rather. There is mm. a point on Twitter um, or on my Facebook page, and it really, really irritates conservative white men when I do that. I get a lot of emails back. But, but where I just know that there is no point in engaging with someone, that they have come on literally just because they feel that they, their opinion deserves to exist in a space that is a radical Aboriginal feminist space and and they're going to throw it down and so I use the power of removing it mm. from that space. They don't need to be there. Mm. They're not there to actually learn anything and and that's been one of the self-care mechanisms. Mm. I mean, you know, it has been a tough battle. I've had to I've had to withdraw certain bits of information about my working life and all of that from the internet in order to protect myself. But, but yeah, yeah. I, I also, as far as as far as self-preservation, realise when I don't have to engage and I don't do it. Mm. <laughs> Renny, have you got any experience or tactics um, or anything you can share? I'm a big believer in boundaries. I think the title of the book sort of speaks to yeah. that. Um, so, I've always sort of made, felt deeply that I'm not really here to argue with anyone, um, which is why, you know, again, I wrote that piece to say, here are the reasons I am no longer going to talk to white people about race, because they behave in these particular ways repeatedly. Um, uh, also, they don't seem to realize they're doing that, and so I'm going to stop. Um, of course, I had a perverse and opposite effect, which is as soon as I press publish, <laughs> suddenly that's all white, you know, what's the phrase? Treat them mean, keep them keen. Like, they just never left me alone from that day onwards. <laughs> um, but I, I am very, like, clear about my boundaries. I change settings on social media. I don't really use social media as a discussion platform for now, and I haven't for a long time, probably mm -hmm. since I started to write the book for, for reasons that I outlined a bit earlier. Um, yeah. You know, I think that if it's quite important that, you know, to av avoid the, like, plagiarism that black women's voices are often subject to. And so um, I don't engage in discussions anymore online, but sometimes people come to try and bother me and I just change my setting so that I don't see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I say, these are the parameters in which I'm having this discussion. Um, I often get calls and ask, can I come and debate with somebody who doesn't believe racism exists. I say, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I just am very clear about what I will and won't do. And yeah. I think that there's this sort of feeling that if you believe in what you're saying, if you really believe in it, then you owe them that time. Like, yeah, yeah. then you should be, doing, should be doing it. And I think there's an entitlement in that ask. And I'm very, I'm very clear about um, not doing those mm. things and, mm. and just sort of saying no. Um, because to me, it's about self-preservation, really. Um, and that, I think, confuses people, sometimes upsets people. I'm, sometimes I'm told, well, uh, you know, again, if you really cared, educate me. To, as far as I'm concerned, if that's the stance you're taking, you're not, you're not anti-racist, are you? Because yeah. you take some of the weight yourself, you do some of the thinking. Like, one of the inherent risks that I find, and, and I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, 
it's been very, very difficult for me because it's objectively good. Here I am, you know, talking about my work and, you know, it's a, a book has come out of it. And it's been, a, on, I think drawing those boundaries and making those cases online have been an objectively good thing for me. But one of the inherent dangers, I think, that comes with, with this is uh, faux social media celebrity being seen as something of a leader of a movement when I absolutely consider myself as part of, of a movement. And I'm constantly batting away questions that look to me as though I have thrown my hat in the ring to be a politician and a representative, which I actually haven't done. Mm. There's been no popular vote to put me here. Um, I consider myself as part of a movement. I'm constantly saying to readers, if you you know, feel moved by the book, then you are also part of that movement, you know, so let's work together. You know, I very much reject this language of allies. I believe in accomplices. I believe in working together. And I do worry that social media, because there's such um, emphasis on numbers um, and audiences, as though there are constituents, and I'm an MP, I feel very... I feel very much against that. I feel very much that this isn't really about me as a person. This is about the things, mm. the things that I'm calling attention to. Um, and I'm very much like pushing away any discussion of me as a person. Like, yeah, I might insert myself into the narrative here or there, but purely for relatability and communication purposes. And I think that that's something that anybody who does activism online must reckon with quickly, because otherwise it all becomes about you. Like, look what's happening to DeRay in the mm. States. There's a you know, phenomenon about the blue vest that he wears. And, and I feel that that is really, you know, we've got to really reject any sort of um, construction of celebrity culture, particularly when we're trying to call attention to structural oppression, because it's still going to be here when I'm not. Mm. Well, white people also have this fascination with leaders as well. Mm. You know, you're a leader of something. The amount of times I've, I've had to shirk away from someone referring to me mm. in some sort of leadership way, because I'm incredibly uncomfortable with that. I mm. am part of a movement as well that my voice exists, I am not representative of the Aboriginal voice. I am an Aboriginal voice and there's other ones who disagree with me and the mm. purpose of that is to make that, that discussion public. Exactly. So that people can actually engage with the fact that we've got diverse views on things um, mm. rather than it being framed on the white perspective. But, you know, if I turn around and say, white people, take me to your leaders, you know, mm. it just doesn't work that way. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think that this feeds into <laughs> a broader, like, um, racist construction of um, there's always representatives who aren't white, but there's no white representatives yeah. because white people <laughs> consider themselves to be individual autonomous beings who are separate and not part of community. Yes. But if you're not white, you are a representative of the X community. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to start getting some white community representatives on my feeds to <laughs> give the white point of view, and then maybe yeah. people start understanding how utterly ridiculous yeah. that whole concept is. Yeah, Nakia Louie actually did a brilliant Facebook post about this yesterday, about being referred to as an Aboriginal playwright. Yeah. And she's like, how interesting that we never talk about white playwrights. And she's like, yes, I write about Aboriginal people because that's a subject matter that I'm interested in. But there are playwrights who write about maritime issues. Should we call them maritime playwrights? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, do you know, I would go, I'd be interested. Like, I'd engage. But it, look, it is really brutal. And I've, I'm, I'm, I'm on a really interesting journey with the reaction 
to my work because I write, overwhelmingly I write about trade unions, working people, the conditions of work in this country, um, the conditions of work for women, and I write about tax policy and these are the things I find interesting. That I have been subjected to death threats, rape threats, um, I've been stalked, followed home, I had a dude set up a telescope and spy into my flat and live tweet what I was doing in my apartment on a Monday night. I've had packages of material sent to my house depicting gang rapes and genital mutilation. Um, I have had a, a guy take me to court seven times and uh, because apparently I'm running a conspiracy to destroy all men. Did you get the memo? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he put in like a thousand page deposition um, using like memes that I had circulated to, to accuse me of, you know, pursuing this conspiracy against men. Um, and he also like tried to get my bank account frozen. He subpoenaed to get my bank account frozen, my passport withheld and uh, to get access to my email. I had my email hacked uh, by a misogynist as well, who then went through my direct messages and sent racially abusive messages to my close personal friends uh, pretending to be me. Um, and the reaction, of course, is entirely proportional to the sense of fear felt by that community mm. that the project of equality is gonna take something away from them. Yeah. And that it, merely claiming my right to speak and articulate in a considered and fact-based way about the nature of work and the nature of taxation um, in the contemporary Australian economy, that is enough of a threat to their understanding of what are male spaces and female spaces for me to receive that kind of sexualized, extremely gendered abuse. Mm. And there have been periods in my journey with this where I have been terrified out of my mind, and particularly when I was going through the whole court process with this person who was cr using the court as a... As a a mechanism to spend time with me effectively because I was the most meaningful relationship he he was having with a woman was this woman he was trying to destroy. Um, it, it has been really challenging. And my partner, it, it's been very difficult on him as well because nobody wants to see the person who they love literally being harassed into you know, this perpetual sort of fear cycle. Um, and he came up, because I, I was really taking it on board, and his line was, the only influence they have is the influence they have over you. Mm. And that was very liberating, to go, what they actually want, they want my traffic. Yeah. And, and if I could look at that in terms of how do I exercise my right to self-determination? How do I reject the, the, the misogynist conditioning that oppresses women to think that we must be receptive, we must answer every question a man poses to us, that we must respond to every invitation, that we must, you know, and I felt that sense of obligation on Twitter because of the kind of medium it was. And, and then I just had this moment of clarity where my friend Karen also said, this is Karen Pickering, your timeline is not a democracy. Like, other people do not own your time. Mm. They do not own your opinion. They do not own, like, access to you. You own that. Like, claim it. And that was so liberating because I just started on this wonderful blockathon where I started blocking people just because I thought they were a bit boring. And I, <laughs> and I started pursuing this whole... If I was at a party and I was being cornered by this person, would I subject myself to this kind of haranguing mm. and reduction and insult well of course I wouldn't and and to remind to remind myself always that there's always somebody who's in an, a less powerful position than you and if you don't exercise boundaries if you don't you know seize your right to to block 
what kind of what are you saying to that person mm. who doesn't have the resources that you do and uh, and that's been incredibly liberating for me and uh, it, it's it's amazing like the sense of entitlement like it's from people who not so long ago in this country you could wake up and if you were a white straight man you didn't have to do anything to have influence and and power, and the law was entirely on your side. I mean, there were parts of Australia where rape was still legal in marriage until 1995. In the state of Victoria, it was only three years ago that if you, if you raped a woman who a court considered to be of lesser virtue, you got a lesser sentence. Like that's, you know, this is the, the institutional structural oppression that we're fighting. And of course they're going to, think that they, they own you or have some claim on you or their opinions are more important. And the act of defiance and saying, actually, no, is, is wonderful. When, when, I mean, maybe Tim also, you, you could maybe jump in with a bit of background about how, not necessarily those voices, like the trolls, the misogynists, the deeply racist people. The Bernie bros, the, who are actually well, some of the worst them. people on the internet because they're so entitled. But how, how is the other side of politics um, using these tools as well? And, and I mean, we're actually going to open it up to questions pretty soon as well. And there's a mic there, a mic up there, and another mic there. Um, and you can go to the microphone and think about a, a question and not a statement, please. Um, but before we get there, talking about like how the other side is using these platforms as well, and we're getting access to very extreme voices on the other side of politics, and sometimes you can choose to block them and choose to disengage. I'm wondering who's using them, how are they using them, and um, from your perspectives, what are the rules of engagement when you do want to get in there? Well, there's a few things. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. But, yeah, I um, <laughs> I mean, there's, obviously, there's been a lot of attention given over the last year to the extremists, the alt-right, the the Nazis who have always been around but have suddenly decided to become far more pl public and far more um, like visible and like, just give no shits. Yeah. Um, but the so so they and they've obviously been very successful. A part of it is people who weren't necessarily doing it to be that active politically, but were just doing it because it was a bit of fun and it was just a joke and they could just create like shitpost and just create memes with a frog and like yes. it didn't actually mean anything it's just a bit of fun because that's what they've always done in these spaces without moderation for a decade or yeah. so um so that also comes back to the question of like who like who gets to have a voice is like we're when we talk about twitter when we talk about facebook when we talk about all of these other platforms like these are corporate spaces these yeah. are Spaces that are run, like they have, might have Australian offices, but they run in the US. And who they decide um, is allowed to like say what they want, and who gets policed, and who gets who gets flagged. And it's like, oh, okay, well you've done, like you've uh, reported using a swear, or you, you've responded using a swear to someone who was actually like threatening to kill you. Mm. But we're going to block, you, we're going to suspend you, mm. not that person, because mm. you know yeah. that. Like this is our business model, and yeah. like the question of like where where the platform interest lies. Like the yeah. platforms want to say that we're not political, but they're being extremely political in their structural yeah. And elements. Yeah, comes down yeah. to Ren Rennie's point as well about like just making sure you're aware that you're taking part in yeah, a big um, institution. It's and a part of the reason why um, I decided to work with a publishing house to facilitate yeah. the mm. the point that I was trying to make on those 
you know, it's, it's, I think, entirely useless for me. You know, useful in huge ways, but useless in other huge ways to attempt to try and have those conversations on Twitter, which is why I stopped. And actually, mm. I never really actively courted them. Instead, like, I just maybe tweeted my opinions, and then people start invading the space, being like, oh, wow, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? And it was not... Yeah. It wasn't conducive. Uh, so, and I think that, that like, that's something that I say to a lot of people who I know who are attempting to try and do work around liberation is take it off social media. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I wanted to pick up something that Tim was saying, just with regards to how, they, how the right are using it online. Um, and, and I should also just be upfront, as someone who said that I've blocked a lot of people, I have also personally been blocked from the United Patriots front page, the Rise Up Australia page, um, <laughs> you know, pretty much every Reclaim Australia page. I, I, I have online trolled myself at times. <laughs> <laughs> But, but one of the most interesting things that I found when they did that documentary, and it was, it was crap, but, but a lot of the people who got engaged in Reclaim Australia through the, the initial online incarnation of it were doing very, very similar in that the, they were seeking community. They were seeking mm. a community of people who felt similarly to them, who had responded in certain ways to various political events and wanted to nurture that sort of community. What they then found within that community were the extreme elements that would stand up and all of that. And what we've seen is that those communities have continually fallen apart over and over again. So a lot of them created got a lot of strength and then splintered here, there and everywhere. Mm. And that's what we're seeing. So more what I'm seeing these other groups doing now is using, using those platforms in order to shut down. So, so my page, for example, was, was banned, um, or I was banned from Facebook seven times for publishing a keynote speech that I'd given um, because it got targeted by, by a group of people due to an image mm. on it. And it, that's how they're using it instead. They're, tr they're seeing that, they've seen that these other more, more um, naturally, naturally collaborative groups have been able to use it and it hasn't necessarily worked for them. So they've tried this other tactic, which is more about shutting down mm that collaboration, that, um, yeah, that critical mass sort of idea that the left uses. Um, I'm just seeing if there's any questions. I can't see anybody at the microphones, but pop up if you have a question, maybe over there. Yes, <laughs> go for it. Um, if you could keep the questions short, we've only got about 10 minutes left. Um, that'd be great. Oh, thanks so much for a really fascinating uh, speech, speech to, uh, talk today. I just wanted to ask about, um, with speculations that Cambridge Analytica might be involved in the next Australian election, um, how does the uh, situation where organised, uh, sort of more right-leaning status quo uh, bodies, very well resourced, how does that affect the work that um, you guys are doing in terms of uh, creating online chaos and has it affected it at all? And specifically maybe from uh, Renier Delodge who lived through Brexit and um, some of the tactics that were employed during that debate. Oh, um, I didn't really tweet that much through Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I mean, one thing, I don't use uh, 
my online platforms and haven't for party political campaigning. I never have. I think there are some political commentators in a similar position to me in Britain who are um, who do do that and might like publicly allay themselves to the Labour Party and then write columns about what the Labour Party should or shouldn't do or what the yes campaign or no campaign should or shouldn't do. But I haven't done that. I've kept it pretty focused, I think. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I can answer your question to any, uh, any sort of like degree because I, I didn't do that over Bre Brexit. Like I commented on some of the like ex explicit white nationalism that um, seemed to be cropping up in the Leave campaign repeatedly, um, but I didn't uh, use my social media for campaigning to mm. stay in, because I feel like other people are doing that. There was loads of people doing that. I didn't feel like I needed to join mm. in. Dan, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I see, I see it as an act of honesty on my part as somebody who writes a regular column to be very transparent about my politics, and I am very explicit about what I stand for because I think that's only fair. Like, an audience should be able to read what I write through a filter of the, the principles that I'm articulate and explicit about. Um, and absolutely, I back certain campaigns and certain candidates, and I um, will endorse them and engage with them on that level. Um, in terms of looking at Cambridge Analytica, there's a solution to Cambridge Analytica, and it's on-the-ground organising, and it's being involved in the grassroots social movements that will be agitating behind um, the, what should be the political priorities for the next election. And for me, that's uh, organisation and participation within the trade union movement, that's being part of the trade union response to the appalling economic policies that, are, that the government are currently perpetuating and will be taking to the election, um, the next one. And all of the Facebook posts in the world and all the data mining is absolutely no compensation for the most powerful political conversation there is, which is three minutes talking to somebody and being visible in a community. And like I said, social media is a tool that you use in the service of the movement that you're committed to. And, you know, social media takes over the old um, inefficient phone trees and social media has replaced the cumbersome resource-intensive internal newsletters. It's the same thing, but it's, it's speeding up that kind of process. It's also particularly useful in mobilising people around physical gatherings like the, um, the Invasion Day protest that Celeste mentioned. Very other projects that people can be interested in, giving visibility to that kind of presence in the streets, in the community, as a group, as a collective, as a movement. And that's how we beat Cambridge Analytica. Mm. Uh, any other questions that can pop up? Feel free. Um, I'm wondering just, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about encountering trolls, but there's, there's also that, the obviously fake news is a big catchphrase, I guess. Um, we now have people popping up on, say, our Facebook feeds or our Twitter feeds who have vastly different views. And I think, Tim, we were talking earlier about um, one tactic being used by, say, the far right is to retweet something out of context into the far right's feed, and then everyone kind of piles onto that person. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, lived experience of that kind of thing and, and how you engage when you do choose to engage, is there any tactics you have in changing someone's mind or making those conversations actually meaningful? I, I, I've had that happen to me often, you know, and particularly when, particularly when I find that someone on the right has made a, a point in the media that I find particularly repugnant, mm. and I will tweet going, you know, why? <laughs> Just and, and then they'll retweet it to their followers in order to build that pile on. Um, 
No, I don't have to engage with that. Mm. I, I just delete, lock, mute. <laughs> I love those functions. They're awesome. Mm. Um, you know, you're not going to actually gain anything from engaging with most of them. Um, it, it is more about those conversations that that people have on the ground, mm. and and you know, if a people, if a bunch of people are um, popping up in my feed with bloody Pepe the Frog, then I know that they're not going to be the people that I'm going to be talking to anyway. Oh, it's when they started hashtagging their, their um, bios as Dingo Twitter, that's a far-right movement. Because yeah. it was great, you didn't even have to read the tweet, you just had to block it. Mm. And the moment you see a frog, you just block. But it is, it is hilarious because, I mean, I've been subjected to some appalling pylons that have been done deliberately. And I'd like to thank Mark Latham for the enormous amount of traffic he brings to my own <laughs> I'm sure he's in the room somewhere. Mark, <laughs> oh, watching everything I do as per usual. Um, but uh, certainly you can't, it, it, anybody who thinks you can reason with somebody who legitimizes hate and violence has never experienced hate and violence. And I think that's a very important point to remember in the context of everything that's going on in America, that no space for fascists, no platform mm. for violence. Uh, you cannot reason with those people and you shouldn't have to. Mm. You know, and the people who you need to reason with are usually the ones who are not talking to you, but who are reading you and, and participating in the discussion around the entry that you're making into the broader conversation. And that's actually where social change takes place. Mm. It does not change with like some kind of evangelical mission to heal right-wing extremists. That is nobody's job. It is not mine. It is not Rennie's. It is not Celeste's. It's no one's. Um, apart from law enforcement, particularly. But yeah. even then. Yes. And, and <laughs> even then. And, and certainly, you know, there's... Uh, the opportunity that we have is to have like a, a, a conversation with our comrades as well and to build that sense of community and participation and sharing and reaching out and affirming that, you know, you're not alone as part of a community that wants to see social change, I think is the most, you know, powerful opportunity the internet provides. Mm. Um, Celeste, you said that you've, you've done a bit of trolling. <laughs> 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 what, what value... Is there in it? Why do you do it? Um, what are you hoping to get out of it? And have you ever achieved that? No, I, I, well, I've achieved nothing from it except being blocked. But, you know, <laughs> to be honest, sometimes, sometimes as, as a commentator who gets hate traffic, who, who has had to remove her personal details from her work website because she's being sent packages of Christian material stating that if I just believed in God, all of this stuff would fall away. You know, um, that always works. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, yeah, sometimes, sometimes, to be honest, it, it's just about personal therapy because I know that I'm going to be blocked within those spaces for two seconds. Although, that being said, I must admit, um, I haven't been blocked on Corey Bernardi's Australian Conservatives page yet, and only the other day, because he decided to put up a, a filter. So now that I've said that, I expect that by the time <laughs> I get off the stage, I will be blocked. But he put up a no to marriage filter, and it had the bloke, you know, this little cartoon bloke in blue, and this um, cartoon woman in pink with a veil and all that. And I just wrote, this is a fantastic filter. I mean, this could be a butch lesbian with a femme partner, <laughs> or it could be a trans couple, or it could be, you know. 
Wow, a, a gay man with his with his out there drag queen partner. I mean, you have represented everyone, Corey. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm waiting for that to come. And with that, Celeste so, admitted she was the rainbow horse. <laughs> so, so, you know, sometimes it is just about personal therapy and being able to laugh in a situation where you are being piled on, you are being mm. attacked. And... It, and shoe on the other foot sort of deal. So, so maybe it's petty, but it can be fun. <laughs> um, we have seven seconds left. So with that, um, I would just like to thank our panelists. Please join me in a round of applause <laughs> for Tim, Rennie, Celeste and Van and the Antidote Festival. That was Van Badham, Rennie Edo Lodge, Celeste Little and Tim Highfield reminding us to utilise the block button and laugh in the face of petty trolls. And that session at Antidote was chaired by Steph Harmon. If you liked what you heard, more from Antidote is coming to your ears next week as James Thornton and Martin Goodman, the authors of Client Earth, ask how we can get justice for our planet. Make sure you subscribe to stay up to date with Ideas at the House and other Sydney Opera House podcasts. Thanks for listening.